It's a mistake to think that because we can imagine a concept of human rights that was neat and tidy and orderly and provided the kind of structure that we want, that there is such a concept. I mean, it'd be nice maybe, but anyway, just because we can imagine it doesn't mean that it's so. So my current work starts from this premise that there's no single way or thing that human rights are, and then tries to theorize from this complexity and multiplicity of rights to try to hold on to the contradictions rather than resolve them, right? So instead of treating all this complexity and contradiction as a set of problems that need to be solved, I want to try and treat them as generative of interesting questions that might help us to rethink what rights are and how people use them. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Michael Goodhart, Professor of Political Science and of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. He is also a professor by courtesy of philosophy and a faculty fellow in the University Honors College. From 2017 to 2021 he directed the University's Global Studies Center. Michael Goodhart's core research interests include democracy, human rights, injustice and emancipatory political struggles. He was a fellow at SCAS during the academic year of 2021-2022, working on a book project about human rights, which we will hear a lot more about in this episode of SCAS Talks. I had a chance to meet with Michael Goodhart in the studio of SCAS while he was in residence, And we talked about what human rights are, how the study of local human rights can add a new dimension to the discussion, and last but not least, what scholars can learn from local human rights activists. And this is the first episode within our theme, Development Issues and Human Rights. Very welcome to SCAS Talks and the studio. It's lovely that we can meet here in person for this particular recording. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Thanks, Natalie. It's great to be here. I think your introduction mainly covered it. I've been working on these questions for a long time and uh, really pleased to have the opportunity to speak with you more about some of the ideas I've been thinking about this year. Yeah, great. It will be very interesting to hear more. So just to start off very broadly, what is your research about? So our listeners get a little bit more insight on what you do. As you mentioned, uh, I'm interested in theories and practices of emancipatory politics. And by that, I just mean the politics that people make when they're fighting against injustice. You know, my first book was about democratic theory in the era of globalization and thinking a lot about how globalization revealed certain tensions that were latent within democratic theory. We have tended for a long time to think about democracy as popular sovereignty, as an idea that the people rule. But that's always been problematic. It's always been false. But globalization has really highlighted some additional ways in which that's false. Most of the previous ways we thought about what was wrong with that had to do with internal exclusions, you know, women or working people or enslaved people or various minoritized populations. Globalization also highlighted external exclusions, right? The way in which decisions that are taken by some states affect other states who and, and, and their populations in ways that they don't have any input into. So anyway, I tried to think about 
a democracy anew in light of these complications. And that led me to try to theorize it in terms of human rights or to think about human rights as a vocabulary for emancipatory democratic politics. So related to these questions about democracy and human rights, important questions of justice arise. And there's a large debate on global justice, which is strangely disconnected from much of that earlier debate on global democracy. And I found that really interesting and problematic. And in the course of doing some research, I actually came to write a, a second book about how political theorists and philosophers, at least in a kind of mainstream Anglo-American, what we would call a Rawlsian framework, thinking about justice, tend to actually frame and answer questions in ways that I think are ultimately distortional, apolitical, sometimes really paralyzing in terms of our ability to, to move important questions forward. So it wasn't the book I imagined I was going to write when I started working on those questions, but I think it was, for me, really formative in, in helping me to imagine and to begin to engage in different ways of doing political theory and led me into the whole new literatures where people had been doing fantastic work on these topics. So now I'm back to thinking again about human rights through this lens of the kind of analytic approach that I developed in the previous book. And that's kind of what I'm doing now. So let's turn to human rights, the topic of this podcast episode. To start off really basic, what are human rights? And I'm thinking about the common conception, what they are, and also how they function. It's a great question. Part of the problem that I'm interested in is the way that human rights are actually very many different things. They're moral principles, they're philosophical concepts, they're laws, political claims, discourses, a vocabulary, a kind of performance. And there are also a bewildering variety of social practices that fall under this topic of human rights. So the question of what they are is really at the center of my research. Now, there is, I think, a common understanding of human rights, and it's something that I'm kind of working with and against in this project. And that common understanding is roughly the idea that human rights are moral principles of some kind, and that these principles can be clarified, conceptualized, and that they form the basis of the laws around human rights that exist internationally, that they inform our thinking about justice and about a range of ethical and political questions, and that then we can organize all kinds of social and political institutions and practices to try to advance the cause of human rights. So in this way of thinking about rights, they're in some sense fundamental entitlements that people have simply in virtue of being human. That's a phrase that's used constantly throughout the literature, that human rights are something we have just in virtue of being human. Shall we go back a little bit in time? Could you give us a brief historic timeline of human rights from the time of enlightenment to the cosmopolitan human rights that came along in the 1990s? Yeah, so there's again a kind of familiar story here, which is that there's the moment at the end of the 18th century, the so-called Age of Revolutions, where the American Declaration of Independence and the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen sort of articulate politically and in a very public way these kind of enlightenment principles frequently associated with figures like Kant that sort of lay out for the first time really this comprehensive idea of the universal rights of man. And I emphasize man because initially at the time, of course, 
despite the universal language, these were believed to be rights that were held by the males of the human species and not others. The subsequent story that's told is one where we get closer and closer to sort of realizing or fulfilling that ideal, right? That the exceptions or exclusions are whittled away. So there's the women's suffrage movement of the 19th century and early 20th centuries. There's the abolition movement, which abolishes first the slave trade and then slavery. There are other sort of developments, the protections of workers' rights and the creation of the welfare state. All this sort of gets wrapped into a story of the kind of further unfolding of this logic, right? So it was all there, goes this familiar story, in the late 18th century, but it takes people a while to kind of work out the full implications of that as they go along. And so this familiar story involves those things I've already mentioned, also the development of humanitarian law in the 19th century, the creation of the International Committee of the Red Cross, the creation of the League of Nations, a kind of failed attempt at creating some sort of formally institutionalized order that will help to manage the world for you know, human rights and cooperation and justice. Then, obviously, the Second World War and the, the tragedies of the Holocaust and all of this, which precipitate the creation of the international human rights regime in 1948 through the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the related arrangements through the UN Charter. And then human rights get sort of bogged down in the Cold War. They can't realize their full potential because they're very deeply politicized. And again, on the familiar story, there's this kind of clash between the social and economic freedoms typical of some fictional notion called the West and the social and economic rights that are typical of some equally fictional notion called the Warsaw Pact or the East or communism or something else. And then with the collapse of the Cold War, with the Berlin Wall coming down and this sort of dawn of a new era of possibility in the early 1990s, the story goes, finally, there is full consensus on human rights. And actually in the Vienna Declaration and Program of Action in 1993 from the Second World Conference on Human Rights, there is this statement that the universality of human rights is beyond question. And so it's as if finally history has, again, on the familiar version of the story, history has reached its end point, right? Francis Fukuyama famously wrote this book called The End of History and the Last Man, in which he posited that with the collapse of the Cold War, finally, the sort of universal truths of liberalism had become apparent for all. And the rest of history was going to be kind of a mopping up operation. We were still going to have things to do. There was still a lot of work, reform needed, but that by and large, humanity had kind of fulfilled its enlightenment destiny. I hope that from my tone, it's clear that I think this wasn't a terribly good argument then or now, but that's sort of the familiar story. And so these cosmopolitan human rights that really emerge in the early 1990s then are part of what I and others uh, refer to as a human rights project. The idea that there's an international human rights regime that's designed to sort of secure the spread and advancement and protection of these internationally recognized human rights. That's mainly a regime that operates through monitoring and enforcement mechanisms. There's something called international or global civil society that's populated by non-governmental organizations, NGOs, which do a lot of the kind of work of actually kind of doing the monitoring and the reporting, the so-called naming and shaming, which is very familiar in the human rights model. And then you know, some of that activity, of course, predated 
the 1990s, right? Uh, especially in Latin America during the 80s, there was a lot of local pushback against authoritarian and repressive regimes in, in South America. And those activists would frequently appeal to the international community to put pressure back on their own governments as a way of trying to mobilize internal reform. This is something that theorists later described as the spiral model of human rights change based on the work of Margaret Keck and Catherine Sickink and Matthias Rissa and Steve Kopp and others. So, so that was kind of the familiar model, right? And that human rights project is one that's very internationally focused, legal in orientation, top down, all about kind of creating, again, these monitoring and enforcement mechanisms, which are meant to you know, advance human rights in a, in a variety of ways. You talk about the cosmopolitan view of human rights in the 1990s, and you are now, in your work, you're challenging this view, really. Tell us a little bit more about that. I should start by saying, you know, on one level, I think this view and the kind of story that it's associated with are real and correct, although radically incomplete. You know, but there is an international human rights regime which has well-developed institutions and a whole body of law and armies of bureaucrats and scholars and lawyers and activists who do work in and around it. And there's a whole historiography that's built around that kind of genealogy of human rights that I just laid out for you, right? And so what I want to challenge is not the reality of that, but rather the idea that it's exhaustive, that it captures everything that's important about human rights or even all of the important things. So one of the key elements of my argument and starting points for the project that I've been working on this year at SCAS is the idea that there's no single way or thing that human rights are. And so that sort of starting point, which in effect is actually the culmination of years of reading and thinking and learning from people who are engaged in struggle, right? But that starting point for the book anyway, leads me to have to go back and, and challenge this familiar narrative. And I want to be really clear, lots of other people have challenged this narrative also, right? So this familiar liberal or cosmopolitan story about human rights has been challenged by what we might call critical theoretical and post-colonial perspectives. Scholars working in those traditions have you know, pointed out that human rights are not what they have always purported to be, that this universality, which was never really sort of real historically, I alluded earlier to some of the internal exclusions and divisions, but that also operated globally as part of a justification for European expansion and empire for the subjugation of so-called backward or savage or uncivilized peoples, right? And, and justified both a wave of settler colonial projects like in North America and South America, and although the, those two contexts are importantly different, but also South Africa and the Antipodes, but then also a later colonial and imperial sort of project that was more directly extractive and exploitative. That work pretty conclusively shows that the, the universality of human rights is at best a double-edged sword and really complicated with respect to the ways in which it licenses all this kind of injustice. So this idea that these philosophical and practical exclusions were just kind of problems that needed to be sorted out and we had this kind of progressive realization towards the full implementation of the ideas is just wrong. So I'm fully on board with that critique. I think it's absolutely correct. I've learned a tremendous amount from scholars working in those traditions. My concern is that a lot of that criticism assumes, in a way, the truth of the model of human rights that it's criticizing. In other words, it assumes that if there are such things as human rights, they must be the kind of 
ideal moral principles of sort of perfect human justice and harmony that are laid out in this kind of cosmopolitan vision such that if you reveal that in fact that story isn't true, you've somehow exposed human rights as a fraud. You've debunked them. You've proven that that they're not real. Um, There's another prominent school of critics, again, one from which I've learned a tremendous amount. These are kind of followers of Michel Foucault who think that human rights are a kind of tool of neoliberal governmentality. That's sort of jargony, but it's just a way of saying that um, human rights are kind of tied up in this specifically modern and liberal way of governing people. And the idea, and I'm simplifying this massively, but the idea is that power in the modern era is not somehow the raw violence of the king, but it's it's more subtle, right? It's not the ability to sort of lop off heads, but instead it's a sort of more routinized form of power where the state is involved in a kind of care for and administration of the human person so that regulations and policy interventions, which are guided by statistics and other modern tools of bureaucracy and governance, constitute a sort of different and more pervasive in some ways modality of power, right? And so crucially in this story, people internalize these norms and expectations and they become sort of self-disciplining right? And so this whole idea of discipline becomes really important. People can form themselves to the requirements of their societies. And this kind of power often gets referred to as biopower because it it tends to understand people in terms of their most fundamental needs and interests. They're sort of conceived as bare human beings, if you will. And then all the kinds of interventions, the kind of biopower that the state uses to care for and regulate and administer these needs and interests comes to seem essential to the continuance of life and and society, right? So that government plays this sort of fundamental role in maintaining the possibility of bare human existence, if you were. Now, the problem with this view, as the Foucaultians point out, is that it's really depoliticizing because these fundamental needs and interests somehow come to seem ethically and conceptually prior to politics. There are just certain things about health, safety, well-being, security, and so forth that shouldn't be political questions in a sense because they're about this kind of, again, this bare biological question of, of survival and so on. And so this becomes really important in the, in the human rights story, to come back to that explicitly, because once you conceive of the uses of power in this way, then all kinds of interventions in the name of this care of people become licensed. And those operate both in terms of interventions into the self, in terms of that kind of self-regulation and self-discipline that I talked about, but also internationally in the form of these humanitarian interventions that became quite commonplace in this period following, again, the early 1990s, where the idea is, well, if there are states that can't care for their citizens or their residents properly, or where there's radical insecurity of some kind that's leading to a lot of loss of life or starvation or whatever kind of crisis, then a kind of intervention on behalf of humanity is not just licensed, but in some sense required in order to kind of save those human lives, right, to regulate that situation. And so the difficulty here, again, I think this critique is also largely right. And there's a tremendous amount of great work, a lot of it by anthropologists, but not just by anthropologists, working to show all the different ways that these humanitarian regimes of intervention and regulation and control, both militarized and not, have deeply depoliticizing effects. 
But again, the difficulty is that in, in this view, human rights and humanitarianism kind of collapse together and human rights lose their kind of political value, right? They lose their role as, or their capacity to function as tools of political resistance or struggle. And so I think both of these critiques are correct. And I think the familiar story is correct. And then for me, the problem is, well, how to, can all this be true at once, right? That's really the question I'm, I'm struggling with. Sounds like a lot of parallel stories and universes. And I guess the problem with this that I see in the literature is that in ways that make a lot of sense to me, as a scholar myself who tries to you know, define questions in some reasonable way and then answer them, there's a real tendency for people to focus on just a part of this big mess of human rights and talk about it as if it were the entirety of the universe of things that are human rights, or to simply talk about human rights to sort of ignore or bracket all the complexity and talk about rights as if they were a kind of cogent or coherent thing. But again, a little bit of reflection just reminds us that human rights are very many different things, including insurgent political concepts that people do in fact use to challenge the status quo, to disrupt existing social arrangements, challenge dominant beliefs, contest the boundaries of the political, all of these things. And so what I really want to push hard against is this reduction of human rights to any one of these different facets of what they are, and then to try to think about what we can do from there. There's a tendency, I think, in the literature on human rights to focus on so-called hard questions. Are human rights really universal or are they a Western construct? You know, are they really imperialist or are they somehow tools of resistance, all these kinds of things. What is the content of human rights? What actually are the human rights? And do they include social and economic rights, say, or group rights or various things? And the idea seems to be, well, if we could answer some of these hard questions, then everything would fall into place, right? And we'd have a nice, neat, coherent view. But it's a mistake to think that because we can imagine a concept of human rights that was neat and tidy and orderly and provided the kind of structure that we want, that there is such a concept. I mean, it'd be nice, maybe. Actually, I think it wouldn't be terribly great. But anyway, just because we can imagine it doesn't mean that it's so. So my current work, again, starts from this premise that there's no single way or thing that human rights are, and then tries to theorize from this complexity and multiplicity of rights to try to hold on to the contradictions rather than resolve them. Right? So instead of treating all this complexity and, and contradiction as a set of problems that need to be solved, I want to try and treat them as generative of interesting questions that might help us to rethink uh, what rights are and how people use them. I mean, it must be one thing to look at it at a theoretical point of view, like you do in, in academic research as a scholar. And then there is the real world out there, as you say, with all of its complexity and politics and people trying to do the one thing or the other. So how does that merge together? Again, the, the kind of familiar view of human rights, the kind of well-institutionalized understanding, the UN system, the regional systems of courts and monitoring mechanisms and, and so on, all has a kind of population of activists and bureaucrats working within it it tends to be a bit more formalized and, again, a bit more legalistic in orientation, as I mentioned before. Then there's the sort of vast world of social justice activists and other activists, 
activists whose work problematizes the idea that there's any clear understanding of what social justice is or that it's itself kind of always the focus of, of what human rights politics are about. People use human rights in all kinds of ways and contexts to claim all kinds of things, some of which are, if you will, legally or philosophically well-warranted given this kind of um, existing legal and philosophical structure, others of which, like, they're kind of making it up. And those uses, the way people adapt, the, the work of uh, Sally Engelmary, an anthropologist who showed that human rights get vernacularized, that activists translate international human rights norms back into, translate them for use in local contexts in ways that are going to resonate and make sense in those contexts. And then her work and the subsequent work of others showing that that's actually a two-way process, that it also, that local uses of human rights sort of filter back up and affect and translate into the global discourse. There's a great recent book by Kiyo Tsutsui called Rights Make Might. Wonderful title, wonderful book, showing how this sort of bottom-up focus influences the global. So uh, the work of scholars like these has really shown that this process is a lot more complicated and complex. And then, and then people use rights in ways that defy both the conventional understanding and the critical understandings. So um, there's lots of great work showing people like Richard Wilson and Mark Goodell, Shannon Speed, showing that this kind of Foucauldian logic works, right? That a kind of a kind of neoliberal, a dominant kind of neoliberal discourse creates a context in which people are in effect forced to speak a human rights language, forced to adapt their articulations of their needs, concerns, interests, whatever, into this discourse in order to make it legible. That all happens. And, and Shannon Speed is particularly great on this, and showed that they, at the same time, defy that, break out of it, mold it to their own purposes, use it in ways that are really subversive and, and radical. So yeah, there's just a tremendous amount of complexity. And it's quite difficult to th theorize that because it differs so much. And so we have lots of great ethnographical work on specific instances of how people use rights in different contexts, but they're so varied that it's hard to, in a sense, build an inductive theory, except maybe to say that, well, it turns out people will do all kinds of things with, with rights. And then to think about what that suggests about hate to say what rights really are, because again, I don't think there's anything that rights really are, but, but how it complicates and enriches our thinking about human rights and, and enables us potentially to think differently about what are really the important questions here and what work might we as scholars of human rights do? Is it really work about trying to solve these, what seem like from a certain epistemological point of view, hard questions? Uh, or is it more just about trying to understand the diversity and complexity of the ways that people actually use rights and see what we can learn from, from thinking through that? And, and I fall much more into that latter category. In your work, you um, look a lot at local human rights. Shall we talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So I am really interested in local human rights practice because it seems to me to really pose direct challenges to this 
again, familiar understanding of what human rights are and how they're supposed to work. Because people do all kinds of things with rights that sort of shouldn't be possible or don't really quite fit the model. And so those examples are interesting to me, both because they're important to people, right, who are involved in real political struggles, and also because they then help me reflect back on broader kind of theoretical questions. And so looking at local praxis, and praxis is a word that theorists use just to explain like theory in or through practice or reflective practice, if you want. People like Paulo Freire are, are sort of important figures in developing this idea. But local praxis is interesting and important because really the local is where everything happens politically in some sense, where people experience human rights violations, even if the causes uh, or the agents of those are from far away or come like it, it's in their daily lives, in their homes, in their workplaces, in their ability or not to access things like food and decent shelter and so on that that people really experience so many of, of their human rights. And so it makes sense that human rights struggles might be quite localized. At least it makes sense to me that they might be quite localized for that reason. But then when you look at those struggles, they tend to not be these dramatic headline grabbing, you know, genocide, famine, whatever it is. I mean, not to in any way diminish the severity or importance of those kinds of things, but for most people, most of the time, human rights violations are much more mundane, much more a part of their everyday existence. And so I think the struggles around those then are really interesting. And they interestingly also shift our focus away from some of these big questions about you know, are there universal principles of human rights that can justify militarized intervention in cases where X, Y, or Z is happening, which tend to get a lot of attention in the scholarly literature, towards questions like, well, what was it actually, what would it actually mean to realize the right to food in some particular urban context, or for that matter, rural context? And how are people thinking about that? So these local uses of human rights are productive sites, I think, for interrogating some of the core assumptions that the cosmopolitan understanding of rights brings, which is, again, that the big questions are solved. There is this universally recognized list of rights. The way to realize it is through better legal enforcement, monitoring, implementation, whatever, whatever. Not to say that those things aren't important and potentially valuable, but they're only one piece of the, of the bigger struggle. And so focusing on these local struggles helps to bring into relief some of these other questions, which I find really interesting. And again, especially this focus on uh, social and economic and cultural rights, which tend to be viewed somehow with skepticism or as secondary in some of the mainstream literature, although that's changed a good bit in the last decade or so. So it's a little bit like looking at the same topic or problem, if you will, through different lenses and from different angles, or? Yeah, that's right. The metaphor of different lenses is useful because it reminds us that we're not talking about different things necessarily. We're talking about different ways of looking at some set of phenomena. And the fact that we change lenses doesn't change the thing itself or the things. It changes our perspective on them, right? And so for me, this ability to shift lenses, to shift kind of levels of analysis, if you will, is really helpful to this idea of trying to hold on to the complexity and multiplicity of rights and to theorize those as productive resources rather than as, again, problems that need to be somehow solved. 
part of why I think this local perspective on rights is really is really helpful is because instead of imagining human rights as this kind of universal, transcendent, liberal politics of global governance that has to sort of stand or fall as a complete edifice, we instead see that activists tend to think of human rights in really different ways. They think of them, at least, again, the activists who are engaged in what I regard as emancipatory political struggles, the ones that I'm, because of my own political commitments, most interested in learning from, they tend to view rights as people-centered. The work of the African-American activist, Ajama Baraka, you know, the idea that rights are people-centered, um, they're flexible, they're adaptive, they're intersectional, they are suited to the needs of vulnerable people, right? That they have to be about the particular time and context where people are organizing and struggling, um, that they're radical in the sense that they challenge existing social arrangements again, and that they're place-based, meaning that they're not this sort of top-down outside interventionist model, but a thing that people themselves can use to make and remake the environments where they live. Like Those are sort of core ideas that seem to be, I don't want to say universal, but they seem to be commonplace among activists involved in emancipatory political struggle. The political theorist Brooke Ackerley has done a lot of great work showing how these principles work in practice in a lot of, in, in her case, particularly feminist social justice activism. So those commonalities, if you will, point toward another way of imagining what human rights are. And so I will, in the book, I hope, kind of try to develop some of those core insights and ideas into a coherent conception of human rights, not with the intention of saying, this is what human rights really are, because again, I don't think there's any such thing, but rather with a way of saying, amidst all of this multiplicity and complexity, this plurality of voices, here's a way that many people are using human rights that seems to be quite congenial to advancing an emancipatory politics, and then to just try to lay that out in a way that makes it plain that makes it accessible, that tries to pull together to the extent that I'm able, many of the insights of different theorists and activists as I can, with the hopes of showing that we can't resolve the questions of what human rights really are or get to the bottom of any of these so-called hard questions, but we can at least understand that there are different ways of thinking about and using them. And if I'm able to illustrate one way that may be useful for people who are concerned with struggling against injustice, I'll feel like that I'll have made an important contribution. You mentioned your book, you're working on it. Do you have a working title at the moment? How is it evolving? <laughs> It's evolving a lot. Since coming here in September, I've really reimagined the entire project. At one point, I had thought of it as kind of a collection of revised essays, things that I'd written in the past that I would kind of try to update and link together with some sort of introduction and conclusion that would provide some thematic uh, coherence and consistency. And then For a number of reasons, I, I just decided, no, I really need to write a book from scratch that lets me really engage this, this set of puzzles in the way that I, that I really need to. So the current working title of the book 
is Paradoxes of Emancipation, a Reluctant Theory of Human Rights. And, and maybe it's worth actually talking a little bit about both of those parts of the title, because I think they both say something about what the book is ultimately going to be. So the Paradoxes of Emancipation part is the idea that there are actually, I've identified so far, I, I think, kind of four th- things about human rights or paradoxes that sort of can't be resolved, that's sort of the nature of a paradox, and that we have to as theorists, or at least that I as a theorist, feel that I need to stop trying to resolve these paradoxes and find a way to to live with them. And so the first one, and maybe in some ways the one that'll be most accessible to people who don't work in this field, is about the question of universality. And, and, And there the paradox is that human rights have to be but can't be universal. What I mean by that is, they have to be universal because the logic of, of a human rights claim, the kind of reason that it works in a sense is because one's saying, I'm not claiming anything special for myself. I'm just claiming what every human being ought to be entitled to. And that's a sort of fundamental component of social justice claims all around the world for centuries. Problem is, of course, that there is no kind of universal set of principles or norms that applies to everyone that would sort of guarantee that we would have justice. This is what we see because people are constantly struggling. First, there's a way of understanding human rights that's not attentive to, for instance, the issues of queer people or disabled people or indigenous populations or other things. And so then one has to rethink the universal and and how can there be universal claims to do with groups that are identified by particular shared social characteristics, right? This seems to be like a lot of a puzzle, but but in a way, it's not the sort of fact of universality that's important. I think it's the aspiration to the idea that people deserve a certain kind of treatment. So finding a way to live with that paradox that rights have to be universal to to work politically, and yet that they never will be. There will never be a doctrine of human rights that gets it right for everybody. Because just to say that would be to close off politics, right? And to close off the possibility of learning from different people's experiences or frankly close off the possibility that there's change in the world and that we might have to adapt to that to that change, right? So that's the first one. Another paradox is that rights are not but can become self-evident. So, you know, famously... Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence writes, we hold these truths to be self-evident. I mean, there's, there's no better indication that something isn't self-evident than somebody claiming that it is, right? But the thing is, some rights have come to look self-evident to us as we get used to them and they get built into our ways of thinking and our social arrangements and our ethical belief structures and so on. And that's really the, the goal in a sense. You want rights to become taken for granted in a certain kind of way. You want them to become uncontroversial because then that means that whatever the substance of the thing is that the right is protecting is actually being enjoyed by the people who need it. So whether it's a right to food or a right to healthcare or whatever else it is, if that's uncontroversial, that's in some ways socially a, a good sign. But no important rights claim was ever self-evident at the beginning because if it was, you wouldn't have had to claim it. And so that's another paradox that I find really interesting about the way that kind of rights discourse and struggles work. Another one that's closely related is that rights require, but they also defy and exceed institutionalization. 
Here, the work of the sociologist Neil Stammers has been really instructive for me. He identified something he called the paradox of institutionalization, which is the idea that rights claims are radical right up into the moment where they get formalized as law, policy, institutions, and then they immediately become conservative because the minute they're formalized, they will, you know, like a snapshot, capture all the kind of assumptions and beliefs and power relationships in place at that particular moment in time. And so some people have used that to say, oh, see, well, so rights, they just become conservative and, and they lose their radical. But I think that's a mistake. It's not as if those institutionalized rights aren't crucially important. I mean, those deliver real material and psychological and emotional benefits for people. And so the struggle to institutionalize rights is vitally important. It's just that it's not enough because the minute rights are institutionalized, then there will be struggles to change those institutional understandings. And so there will be, in other words, further internal contestation, if you will, of what those rights are. But then also struggles for new rights that go beyond the ones or, or correct the limitations of the ones that have been institutionalized. And so we have to think about both what it means to institutionalize rights as an important way of people actually coming to enjoy, again, the substance of the things that rights are supposed to protect, and also the insufficiency of that. And then finally, in a way, this is sort of a meta-reflection on these paradoxes, but that Rights are always going to remain contradictory and politically ambivalent, right? If you take seriously this idea that I do that rights are complex and, and multiplicitous and that there's a plurality of uses and voices involved, that there's not going to be a time when we can say, okay, well, now we feel totally good about rights, or now there are no more problems with rights, or now we've solved all the... I mean, rights will be used to justify wars and humanitarian interventions, but really just as rhetorical cover for some other kinds of ambition to do with carbon-based energy politics or great power struggles or whatever else. Rights will be used to shut down political discourse because people will invoke their rights and, and, and use that as a way to try and prevent discussion of other alternatives. Rights will be claimed by some people in ways that would entail that other people's rights get ignored. You can think of property rights, whether in the context of settler colonialism or in the terms of, you know, the massive accumulations of wealth that are going on today around the world. So those things will never get solved. A great example that came up in the discussion after my seminar here at SCAS was the pro-life movement, which has increasingly adopted human rights language and framing in terms of the rights of the unborn and protecting human lives and whatever. And my political views on abortion will be what they are. The point for me is that there's no way philosophically or politically that one can exclude people from making rights claims that I or others, maybe even many others, might not agree with, might find, in fact, incredibly problematic or in some instances, even reprehensible. So we just have to find ways to sit with that. That leads me to the second part of the title, which is the reluctant theory of human rights. And, you know, the theory is, I guess, reluctant in a couple of ways. It's reluctant because I feel like a theory of human rights that I can put forward won't do many of the things that at least political theorists and philosophers and others who work in this field have tended to think that a theory ought to do, which is answer all these hard questions. Also, I don't think the world particularly needs another theory of human rights generated by a middle-aged white male academic in a privileged situation. Like, we've got plenty of those. So what do we need another one for? 
And so I'm really conscious of those things. But at the same time, I feel like, again, my limited experience working with activists and also my study of activist political struggles involving human rights is that the concept remains essential to the work that they're trying to do. And a lot of this academic skepticism or these rejections of human rights end up becoming obstacles to their gaining support, building solidarity, being able to kind of articulate the kinds of things they want to fight for. And so I really end up where the great literary and cultural theorist Edward Said ended up in his last book, Humanism and Democratic Criticism, is that what it's called? It comes out in like 1994. It's near the end of Said's life. The invasion of U.S. invasion of Iraq has just happened. And Said's being asked about why he continues to use the language of human rights when obviously this is a bankrupt and empty language because the U.S. has just, you know, invaded Afghanistan and Iraq in the name of protecting human rights. And there's all this massive civilian death, all this sort of horrific stuff going on. And, and Said says, well, I'm grateful to my, I should say to my colleague, Jeannie Moorfield, who's written a wonderful book on Said, which is coming out any minute. And, and, and she's the one who sort of drew my attention to this. Said says, there's not another language at hand. We just don't have an alternative to this. And so if I want to be critical of the president or the State Department for the actions that they take, I have to be able to make that criticism in the same vocabulary that they're using, right? Because, because you can't just make something up. It won't have resonance. It won't have bite. And in the same way, I feel like to not try to articulate a sort of usable and workable understanding of human rights for emancipatory politics is to not just do a disservice to, but also in a way to refuse to learn from the experience of these activists who are engaged in real meaningful and often life and death political struggles around having a place to live or enough to eat or the ability to walk safely through the streets or, or whatever it might be. And so, and so I call the theory reluctant because I, I recognize all the problems with putting forward a theory like this. And yet I feel like, again, to quote Said, there just isn't anything else to hand. Yeah, but then you're developing like a new tool to understand the complexity that you deal with, or the kind of questions that come up. Or Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not so reluctant that I'm not doing it. It's a way, I guess, of trying to signal what I think is the appropriate political and epistemological humility and posture toward the diversity of practice that's out there, right? A reluctant theory is one that has to recognize that it's always incomplete, that it's never going to be, have an answer to all the problems, that it constantly needs to be checking itself, questioning itself. That's so much great work by feminist scholars in the last 20 years about this kind of critical self-reflexivity and, and the ways in which we need to constantly be developing epistemological resources for questioning what we do even as we're doing it. And then to try to do this also in a way that acknowledges and learns from the kind of knowledge that's produced by people who are in struggle rather than treating the questions about human rights as sort of philosophical puzzles or, or matters of sort of legal reasoning or whatever else. I mean, all that also is kind of built into this, to this notion and, and, and part of what I'm trying to do. What kind of reactions do you get when you talk about your research on human rights? That's a great question. So it depends who the audience is. Lots of people with a more activist orientation are really sympathetic and I think interested and hopeful that maybe something useful will come out of this. Folks who are in the more traditional 
kind of liberal cosmopolitan understanding of human rights or who are more sort of traditionally trained political theorists or philosophers in the more analytic tradition tend to think that I'm just making a mistake of some kind. And, And whether that's a mistake about what rights really are or about the possibility of determining what we could call the moral truth, I guess. It depends, but they tend to think that that this is a problematic enterprise. Let me give you a, a more concrete example to make that to make that real. A comment that I frequently get from some of these folks is, well, if your project is successful, you'll have pulled the rug out from under the feet of the very people you're trying to help. What they mean is if you show that there is no such thing as human rights, that they're not like these true moral principles etched into the fabric of the universe by the hand of God or whatever, being a little facetious, but you know, if there aren't such things as human rights, that they're not, in a sense, moral truths, discoverable moral truths, then what's the foundation of those activist claims that they're entitled to X, Y, or Z because it's a human right? I get the criticism and the concern, right? I understand it. But again, I don't think that, so even if there were such things as human rights as moral truths, I don't know how we determine what they are. I mean, lots of philosophers have tried and they disagree. And so maybe it's possible there will be a breakthrough at some point, but smarter people than me have worked on this and not gotten terribly far. And people will want to say things like, oh, but there are some that are really obvious, like, you know, you shouldn't kill people. Well, but then pretty quickly it becomes apparent that like, we think it's okay to kill people in a number of different contexts, right? For a number of different kinds of reasons. And pretty much any right you think of, you can start like, once you get past some absurd level of generality where the right is actually not operable, there start being nuances and exceptions, whatever. But so anyway, I get the critique and I'm sympathetic to it on one level, but my wishing that the world were a certain way doesn't mean that it is. And I actually don't think that what powers activist claims about human rights is their like truth quality, if that makes sense. I think it's that they're tapping into a certain kind of ethical discursive sensibility, the idea that everybody should be treated equally, which is not an idea everybody holds. I mean, look at the world. It's full of fascists and white supremacists and misogynists and all kinds of people who do bad things. And and they do bad things because they, at some level, don't think that everybody deserves the same kind of treatment or that they're special or, or what have you. But I'm not just talking about like people who behave badly. I'm talking about like, again, these belief systems, racism, white supremacy, misogyny, that, that sort of take categories of people and regard them as somehow less than fully human or less than deserving of the same rights or treatment that they expect for themselves. And those, it seems to me, really demonstrate quite clearly that not everybody, in fact, believes that everyone deserves an equal treatment or, or an equally dignified life. And so that's why human rights claims aren't self-enacting, right? They're always won through political struggle. Again, if everybody believed that it were true and obvious, it would kind of become difficult to understand why there's so much controversy about rights in the first place, right? So I think that what makes rights claims successful is not their purported truth value, but rather their appeal to a particular ethos, if you will, which is difficult for people to argue against. It's really hard to argue, well, no, actually, you don't deserve this treatment that I take for granted for myself. People do it, but it's not an argument that's easy to make in our world today. 
used to be easier to make, and it could be that our world becomes one again where it's easier to make. I mean, certainly, again, I, I worry a lot about these growing social and economic inequalities and the way that it entails a certain understanding that, well, if you're not rich, you just don't, it's on you somehow. So anyway, that's a long, a long way of saying that uh, the reactions are, are mixed. You know, and, and I should say too, then there are some folks out of those kind of more critical traditions who just say, no, it's just a mistake. Human rights are bankrupt. You really should just give up. So there's a range of reactions across. But mainly, I'm most concerned about how folks who are really engaged in doing the political work and the scholars who are working with them react. That's the audience that I think I'm, in a sense, most concerned with. So you also have some own engagement in the Pittsburgh region, and you're a member of the steering committee for the Pittsburgh Human Rights City Alliance. Can you tell us a little bit more about your engagement there? The Pittsburgh Human Rights City Alliance was formed following the Pittsburgh City Council passing a resolution that declared that Pittsburgh was a human rights city. I think we were the sixth city in North America or the U.S. at least, to do this. And it came about as a result of actually a project undertaken by some high school students who decided that they thought that it would be a great idea if the city committed itself to human rights principles and tried to live up to them. So they drafted this resolution and they worked with their city council person and they got this resolution passed. And the thing I should say about this is it's both fantastic that these students did this and these resolutions are not... There were probably three other resolutions passed that day, one declaring it like Heinz Ketchup Day and one declaring that the city of Pittsburgh was committed to blue skies or, you know, whatever it might be. So that was 2011. And then a bunch of us in the wake of the kind of petering out of of the first big Occupy manifestation, which in Pittsburgh was a very strong movement. There was an encampment in downtown Pittsburgh that lasted well beyond the time that the encampments in New York and some other places had been shut down into February. But people were sitting around sort of contemplating next steps following the kind of end of the first phase of that particular movement and manifestation. There were some folks, and really the person who's the moving force behind this was my colleague Jackie Smith in the sociology department at Pitt who's a wonderful scholar and organizer. And, you know, we had the idea that, well, maybe we could get the city to, like, maybe we could hold their feet to the fire. Maybe we could get them to try to take seriously this commitment that they made. And so the idea of the Human Rights City Alliance was to try to be a kind of network or umbrella organization for other social justice organizations in the city to try to both get people kind of working in solidarity across different issues. This is one of the big struggles always in activist work is that it's very siloed. People have an issue that they're working on. It's an incredibly important issue, but because of time and resources and all kinds of political exigencies, they don't have time to engage much outside that particular issue. But all these issues are, of course, at some level, deeply interconnected. And so having a kind of broader front can both help to amplify the messages of the different members of the coalition, but also help to advance the work by making progress on hopefully multiple fronts simultaneously. So 
So a process was organized, which a lot of meetings, a lot of input, a lot of listening to these different groups and their needs and concerns and priorities, and then a platform was put together. And now the City Alliance does a lot to try to highlight human rights issues in the city, to coordinate messaging and activities among various social justice organizations and so on. So I'm a member of the steering committee, and I've been sort of part of the thing notionally from the get-go. My involvement in the last years has mainly been through my role as director of the Global Studies Center, which you alluded to in your introduction. And there, the center partnered frequently with the Human Rights City Alliance in a way that helped us to achieve one of the big goals of the center, which was the idea of connecting the local and the global and thinking about the ways in which global issues always have local manifestations that are really crucially important and that a good way to understand from a pedagogical point of view some of the seemingly vast and complex, not seemingly the actually vast and complex global issues that we face is to understand how they're working locally and then use that as a stepping off point to understand some of the larger global questions. So we use that both as an important pedagogical tool within the center and also as a way to partner with the Human Rights City Alliance to help bring to light some of the important issues that were ongoing right in our own city. Again, like so many students, especially undergraduate students, will come to a course on human rights or a talk and they want to, in the most well-meaning way possible, like want to save people or help people who they conceive of as different from them and far away in some place where there aren't human rights. And we try really hard from the beginning in our work to get them to see, well, actually, there are human rights issues like right outside the door, right where you live. You may be implicated in some of them without knowing it, right? But they're right here. And so that work is important pedagogically. It, it also then had a research component, which, again, it was possible. And again, a lot of my role was helping to find resources to make some of this work possible. But there is a network of human rights cities now in the United States. This was born out of a conference that was held at the University of Pittsburgh in 2016 using some funds from the center where we uh, were able to bring together scholars and activists working on local human rights, politics, and activism, and think about what a network a national network among people engaged in this work might do. A follow-up meeting in Washington, D.C. the next year led to the creation of something called the U.S. Human Rights City Alliance or the National Human Rights City Alliance, as I think it's now called. That's, a, again, an informal collaboration among people doing human rights cities work across North America. And that also allows us to then tap in in an intellectual way to the important debates that are going on around human rights cities and something called the right to the city which is a big discourse prominent in Europe and also in Africa and South America that's going on as well. So, so we try to, again, bring together the scholarly and the activist work in ways that, you know, both draw on our unique strengths as academics situated in a, in a place of pretty clear security and, and freedom to do this work and to be able to then try to use that position to enable the work of activists and also to enable our understanding of the way these local human rights dynamics work. So yeah, there's a lot of great things that have come out of that. I mean, two examples of kind of concrete achievements, if you will. A coalition called the Cities Pittsburgh Cities for CEDAW Coalition formed. CEDAW is the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. It's an international human rights treaty signed by virtually every country in the world, but not by the United States. I should say, I think it was signed by the United States. It's not been ratified by the United States, and so it's not been implemented 
And so a movement grew up back in the 1990s, the city of San Francisco, quote unquote, ratified this treaty. This gets back to what we were talking about earlier about the perspective that local human rights activism gives us on this cosmopolitan view. Cities can't ratify treaties. That's not a thing that can happen in international law, right? Treaties are agreements among states. But the city of San Francisco passed a resolution effectively saying, because the U.S. government has not ratified this treaty, we are going to, in effect, embrace all of its provisions and work to make our city one where the rights of women are fully realized. And they created a gender equity commission and they did a number of things. So a coalition grew up in Pittsburgh to try to get the city of Pittsburgh to become a CEDAW city. And in fact, after an important campaign and a lot of work educating and lobbying city council members, a resolution was passed by the city to declare that the city is a is a CEDAW city. We created a gender equity commission, which now reviews all city policies and budgets to consider the gender impact of those. We have a a full-time gender equity commissioner and a a mayorally appointed gender equity commission um, to, to again, go back through um, city laws and policies and and, and try to make them comply better with the requirements of uh, conventions. And the Human Rights City Alliance was a key partner in helping to orchestrate that campaign, facilitate some of the work, get the messaging out, build a broad coalition. We were able, through the center, to help bring in speaker for a big keynote launch event. I mean, this is an incredibly minor thing in the context of all the work that people did to make this happen, but it's just to illustrate the ways in which we try to imagine how these different connections can come together in productive ways. And again, it not only achieves something concretely in the city, which hopefully makes people's lives better, but it also then helps us by participating but also by observing and learning from the process, understand how human rights work locally better and has informed writing and publication and subsequent research projects that myself and others have, have been engaged in. That's one big example of a, of a success. Another example, and again, one that brings us back to this question of how the local gives us a different perspective on this kind of cosmopolitan human rights project. There's something that was relatively recently set up by the uh, UN Human Rights Council called Universal Periodic Review. And the idea here was that instead of the council only considering problematic cases, you know, cases where there were flagrant human rights violations um, that sort of came to prominent international attention, that every country's human rights record should be periodically reviewed and recommendations made and, and suggestions given and so on. So when this was first set up, a lot of people were skeptical, like, oh, it's just another like exercise in the whole human rights bureaucracy and what good will it do? And countries won't take it seriously and whatever. But it turns out actually... The countries do take it seriously because governments don't like being grilled on the international stage about their human rights records. And even the best countries with the best human rights records have human rights problems that can be identified and drawn out. So as this process got going, um, folks started realizing, oh, well, there's a way activists can participate in this, which was not envisioned by the people who set it up at all. They envisioned this as a high-level state diplomatic kind of process with government submissions and then this review by a panel of experts, activists started making shadow reports, which they would submit directly to the Human Rights Council. And these brought up all kinds of issues that governments either ignored in their reports or tried to downplay or or what have you. And so through that national network that I referred to a second ago, a sort of UPR cities network was created where a bunch of folks in different cities generated local UPR reports that were then kind of synthesized into a a report that was 
submitted and got some attention and discussion in Geneva and helped to inform, I think, I hope, the questioning that was asked of the U.S. government representatives at the last uh, time that the U.S. underwent universal periodic review. Now, people who are skeptical of this work, and there are many, and to some degree I'm one of them, say, well, okay, so what? That and $2 gets you a cup of coffee. What good has this done? And I partly agree, but the point to me is not to imagine that somehow the UN is going to come and fix our human rights problems in Pittsburgh or in the US. I mean, if only. What's interesting is the education that can happen through getting people to do the work of like formulating these reports and reflecting on what's wrong in the city and coming to understand that a whole bunch of issues, again, that they hadn't really recognized were connected are in fact deeply connected and and, and really kind of doing that work of educating themselves and becoming more informed critics and also having that criticism inform their own activism in different ways. Like that's the, the value of it, right? And so in a way, the Universal Periodic Review does this thing, does this couple of things that no one who set it up thought it would do and that some of the people who set it up are uncomfortable about the fact that it does, but it still does it. And that's because it's not Again, because of this incredible creativity and multiplicity of human rights practice. Those are just a couple of examples that maybe give a little flavor of, of this work. And again, to emphasize, I mean, I have a toe in this work compared to what other people are, are doing. My particular contribution has been to be able to help to use and direct some of the resources of the university towards supporting this work in ways that both make a concrete difference in people's lives and further the teaching and research missions of the university at the same time. And that's been the piece that I've maybe been able to make the most contribution. But that sounds like a really good way of, well, outreach and also using your experience and your knowledge in a real life situation. Yeah, I hope so. Unfortunately, I missed this because I'm here, but we just had a multi-day visit from the former UN Special Rapporteur for Housing, Leilani Farha, who came to Pittsburgh to put on some events and have some conversations with faculty and students at the university and to meet with housing rights advocates in Pittsburgh. Housing is a big problem in the city. It's one in which the HRCA has really been focusing some of its work. There was just a white paper written by Jackie Smith, along with a couple of her junior colleagues in sociology, about ways to address this problem. And so being able to have a figure like Leilani Farha come to Pittsburgh to really think with us engage with us, also engage with local leaders on some of these questions and to represent all of her experience in the new organization that she's been working with, The Shift, which is really interested in questions of housing rights and housing justice globally. Like To be able to leverage that kind of opportunity you know, is something that without the, without the role of the university in the center wouldn't have been possible, and it helps in all those fronts. This is really interesting, and uh, I think we have all learned a lot about human rights and different ways to, to look at them. So thank you very much for that. I would like, as always in this podcast, to conclude talking a little bit about SCAS, where we are right now. So you're a scholar here in this academic year. What's your experience so far? Well, my experience is that it's fantastic. I mean, there's not much to say. It's um, Especially for someone like me who was just coming out of many years of a 
very heavy administrative burden. To just have the time and space to read and think and reflect and write without interruption and to really be surrounded by brilliant colleagues from a whole range of disciplines, some of whom are well-positioned to give really good substantive advice and feedback on my work, and others of whom are just interesting to talk to because they have a completely different way of thinking about the world than I do. It's just such a nourishing and enriching environment. You know, the staff are fantastic. The lunches are amazing. (laughs) It's just a wonderful place to be. And really, it's literally impossible that I would be able to take on this project in the form that I'm taking it on without the time that was afforded by this fellowship. So I'm extremely grateful. And as you said, you meet scholars from a lot of different disciplines, also from those that are quite different from yourself. How is that to talk to people who do something completely different? Yeah, it's fantastic. I've, for many years now, I've been deeply interested in facilitating interdisciplinary conversation because at my center, at the Global Studies Center, we did that very much. We had colleagues from many, many different disciplines involved in the work that we were doing. And I always find those conversations both enriching and challenging. And the main challenge I've found, and I'm not the first to say this, but interdisciplinarity is hard. It takes a long time to learn to understand where people are coming from, how they're thinking about things, and also just to develop the kind of trust that's needed to engage in a conversation with somebody in a totally different field where you're for sure going to say something stupid and you need to be able to feel like that's going to be okay. And so one of the things that we tried to do a lot at the center was to have just kind of social events where people could get together who wouldn't necessarily otherwise be in the same room together just to meet each other and talk in hopes of trying to build that kind of community. But I mean, here, every day we get to eat lunch together, we get to hear each other talk about our work and ask questions and then have casual conversations about it afterwards. We get to watch movies together, go to dinner, whatever whatever it might be. And so, so really we have that time and that ability to form the kinds of relationships that really, I think, make genuine interdisciplinary conversation and and collaboration possible. And so, you know, I think in different years from my understanding, projects sometimes emerge or don't. But for me, just being in an environment where I can, you know, go and have conversations with the evolutionary biologists, who it turns out on a couple of occasions this year, I've had really concrete questions for them about things that have come up in my own work and have had really great discussions. That's just a wonderful privilege. Thank you very much for joining me and our listeners on SCAS Talks and coming to the studio on this lovely day. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm glad for the invitation to be able to talk about some of my work and uh, I've really enjoyed it. So thank you. Thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the first episode in our theme, Development Issues and Human Rights, featuring Michael Goodhart, Professor of Political Science and of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and fellow at SCAS in the academic year of 2021-2022. In this episode, he told us more about some of his research on human rights. And this recording took place in the end of April 2022, before the US Supreme Court ruling on abortion. While working with the material from this recording, I came to think of two previous episodes. Episode 30, where Charlene Randeria 
talks about citizen and state relations in India through the lens of displacement and episode 26, featuring Ash Amin's research about infrastructures, habitats and slum lives. Maybe you would like to listen to these as well. Currently, we feature the following topics, developmental issues and human rights, Latin America, gender and also genetics and evolution. And the list of podcast episodes and themes is constantly growing. We started off in the summer of 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic and went on to also feature the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life sciences, infrastructures in Asia, citizen and state relations. The variety of themes reflects the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS, with fellows from many different disciplines. We are sure that there is something of interest for everyone. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend SCAS Talks to your colleagues and friends. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. SCAS Talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. I would like to thank Michael Goodhart once again for talking to me and of course thanks to you for listening. Bye for now. Bye.